All right, so with that being said, if you would, turn to Song of Songs. Let's pick up where we left off last. We'll look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I'd love for you to follow along with me. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines. The voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. I asked Jay and Dolly to share because I want you to see a living example of what we see being portrayed in the song this morning of, of two people pursuing one another. In verse 8, we see that the, it's the husband's pr- pursuit. She says to him as the, the woman speaks, she says, listen, my beloved, and, and he's, he calls out to her, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, arise and come with me. It, it's, a, it's a passionate plea as she watches him approach her house. She sees him coming, imagines him like a gazelle just leaping over obstacles. There's nothing can stand in the way. He bounds past mountains and and hills. And and remember, this is poetry. So it's written to stir our emotions so that we can feel the passion of his eager pursuit, but also to observe the wife's anticipation. She sees him coming because she's standing at the window waiting for him to arrive. And he's inviting her out of the confines of the house and into the boundless beauty of nature. It's really kind of a call figurative from that that predictable and mundane into a, a new adventure in nature. Because as the husband explains, he says that that winter has passed and spring has sprung. And, and the landscape is exploding with new life. If you've been around long enough, you know what this is like because here in a few weeks, uh, we'll be in the dead of winter, right? When all the leaves have fallen off the trees, the grass grows dormant and turns brown, all the birds, the animals, even the people go into hiding in their homes, right? And being cooped up for weeks on end, we can't wait for spring to arrive. We get excited, at least I do, when I start to see little buds forming on the branches of the trees, flowers that start to bloom as the sun thaws out the frozen earth, and then the birds start singing. It says, if the world begins to come to life once again. So the husband, in that scene, calls out to his wife, and it says, arise and come with me. He invites her to to join him in the beauty of creation, to flourish in the new possibilities that that come with spring and, and to find hope in the future 
of their marriage. Because you see, marriage is like any relationship, and it will go through seasons. And sometimes those seasons are a lot like winter. They can be cold and dark. They can be difficult. There could be disagreements and hardship. And like the woman, there is this tendency to hide behind the wall of self-protection, withdrawal, like Jay mentioned. But here's the key. Eventually, someone has to make the first move. And in this case, it's the husband inviting his wife into something better, a place where they can have a a fresh start filled with some new possibilities. And I believe this is an important attribute for really any healthy relationship, certainly marriage, but even beyond. See, it's, it's the refusal to stay in a dark place where love lies dormant. It's the courage to say, let's find a way. However hard it may be, let's find a way to work through this together. It may start with an apology. It may begin by asking for forgiveness. But whatever it is, it is simply unwilling to say nothing. It's a love that takes the initiative for the benefit of the other person. It's a refusal to hide. It's a persistent pursuit of a deeper affection for one another. And I think that's what we're seeing in our passage this morning. And like we heard from Jay and Dolly, it doesn't always have to be because something's wrong or you're having to work through something difficult. Instead, it's just based on the belief that there is always something better. No matter where you're at, there's always something better. It's the conviction that you could never dive deep enough into the depths of love to get to the bottom of it. For the rest of your life, you'll be mining treasures that have no end if you continue to pursue it, even if that means working through hard things. And let me just say, as I thought through that this week, I think we've completely lost this concept in the world today even in the church today. The whole idea of no-fault divorce is an abomination to the Lord. And I mean that. I'm not exaggerating that. The reason I say that is because according to God's design and through the work of His Spirit, there is no such thing as irreconcilable differences. They don't exist in the kingdom of God when the Spirit of God is at work. We've just simply made it way too easy to just walk away. And I know, look, there are legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. Really, too specifically, unrepentant infidelity or unrepentant abuse or abandonment. But all too often, and I see this over and over again, it seems that couples can become laser-focused on how to get out instead of thinking of the myriad of reasons why they should actually stay in. 
the covenant commitment signed by God is a sacred institution. Marriage, let's not forget, was made in the image of God and intended to reflect the beauty of his goodness and his glory. So so in the end, this is really not about me and my happiness. This is about him and us as our creator and savior. Marriage is a crucible of sanctification. That's why it's hard. It's a crucible of sanctification. You're right, we're not the same person, and God forbid that we were. We want to grow and change and become more like Christ, and and the marriage relationship is a tremendous means of sanctification. It's like the the graduate studies, the only thing more difficult is your doctoral studies when you have kids, (laughs) because you don't realize how selfish you are until you get married, and you think you've got it figured out until you have kids. It's a crucible of sanctification, conforming us into the image of Christ, revealing how prideful and selfish we can be. And listen to me, it is always a a love that's worth fighting for. Not only for our good, but ultimately, and even more importantly, for his glory and his praise. Let's look again at our passage in verse 14. He goes on and says, Oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your, your form is lovely. Catch the foxes for us. I believe this is where she interjects. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while the vineyards are, uh, the vineyards are in blossom. Beloved, my beloved is mine. And I am his, his pastures, his flock among the lilies. Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Athar. Here again, we see the husband continuing to call out to his wife. He he compares her to a, a dove that is hiding in the cleft of the rock. She's somewhere hidden, somewhere inaccessible. And he wants her to show herself. He wants to see him with, her, with his eyes. He wants to view her, her form. And, and to be honest, I don't know exactly why she's hiding. The, the text doesn't give us a clear indication. But once again, I think it's part of the beauty of poetry. Because the ambiguity opens the door to possibility. Is she hiding? Because of her own insecurities, we've, we've seen that theme throughout the song so far. Is, she's, is she hiding out of hurt feelings or is she harboring resentment or is she just playing hard to get? <laughs> we don't know. The, the text doesn't tell us. But I think verse 15 might give us some clue because she identifies these foxes that are ruining the vineyards, which would have actually been a problem that farmers would have to deal with during that time because foxes were notorious for coming in and stealing the ripened fruit within a vineyard. And all throughout the song, the vineyard has been a metaphor for the marriage relationship. It's a place where their love comes to life, where they delight in the fruit of their shared affection. 
And so some way, foxes must represent something that threatens that love, that abiding fellowship together. These are distractions that invade the marriage relationship. When they're young, it could be the stress of finances as they're just trying to figure out how to make it day to day. As they grow older, it could be the stress of a new career, a new job, or changing locations and shifting from one place to the next and all the pressures that come with that. Once they have a family, it could be all the distractions of what it's required to to raise kids. And then when those kids leave, they may look at each other and realize that they've actually neglected the love that they have for each other. We don't know. But the beauty of the of poetry makes all of these a possibility. And I think even more, it causes us to ask ourselves, what are the distractions that threaten my affection, our affection, and in our marriage relationship? How does the enemy seek to prevent us from flourishing? What are the ways that we need to protect our marriage relationship? I think we see an important encouragement in verse 16 when she says those beautiful and well-known words, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In other words, marriage is not all about me. My spouse was never intended to meet all my needs. In fact, marriage is considering the needs of my spouse is more important than my own. That's basically the the basis of a covenant relationship, laying down your rights for the good of the other person. It's self-sacrifice, not self-protection. So we should, in our marriage relationship, repeatedly renew our covenant commitment, much like we do when we practice communion as a church family. We are doing that to repeatedly renew the covenant commitment that God has made to us through his son. And and we need to regularly do the same thing in our marriage relationship as well. We need to say to each other, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Or more, more poetically, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It's the same thing. It's a willful decision to be fully known and fully loved, coming out from behind the walls of self-protection, inviting the other one in, refusing to hide in our our doubts and our insecurities, refusing to harbor our hurt feelings or resentments, Knowing that the sin of self-protection will sabotage your marriage relationship or any relationship for that matter. You simply cannot live for yourself and love another person. In fact, the depth of your love depends directly on your willingness to give your life away. That's why Paul uses that passage in Ephesians to make a connection to Christ's love for us because he says in Hebrew, excuse me, Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And how do we know that? He tells us because he gave himself up for her. Mutual self-sacrifice is the secret, okay? You wanna know the secret to a long and enduring marriage? Here it is. 
mutual self-sacrifice is the secret to a long and enduring love. So instead of hiding in self-protection, the woman accepts the invitation. She makes herself known. She comes out of hiding, and she invites her husband into the vineyard. She reaffirms the covenant love that she has for him, and she whispers those beautiful words, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Look at how it continues in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loved. I, I sought him, but, but I didn't find him. I must arise and, and go now about the city in the streets and in the square. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I, I sought him, but, but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city find me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the room of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the hinds of the field, that you not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. This is a little bit of a shift, as you can tell, and we've seen this throughout the song, and remember, it's a song, so this is like another verse. And so it's a scene change from one to the other. We've moved from the springtime in the nature to nighttime in the city. And by all accounts, this appears to be a dream. The NIV is helpful when it says, all night long on my bed. It seems as if she's fantasizing about fears that seem to occupy her mind. We've seen this with the, the woman already. She can kind of get lost in her insecurities, as is the case for all of us. And then when we have a sleepless night on top of that, our minds can run amok. I'm sure most every one of us to be true. So, so maybe that's what's happening here. Because she's longing to be with her husband, the one her soul loves. I, I, this is a beautiful phrase, and it's repeated three times in these Five verses, just the way she has such affection for him, the one my soul loves. And I think it helps us see that, that covenant love is not just some shallow affection. It's a love that we feel deep inside our soul to the point that their joy becomes our joy. Their pain becomes our pain. I know for a fact when my wife hurts, I can feel it deep inside my soul. And when my wife is filled with joy, I could not be happier when I see it. And that's what he's talking about here. That's what she's saying when she says, the one my soul loves. And it's why her, the absence, the, the very thought of her husband not being there has created such a longing in her heart. In fact, she's so desperate to find him that she risks her life in her pursuit. So she runs into the city in the middle of the night. She goes downtown when it's completely dark outside. And remember, this is before streetlights or anything. And so she's totally risking her life to find the one her soul loves. But, 
to no avail because he's not there. Instead of finding her husband, she runs into the watchmen. These are like the police officers who protect citizens. But typically when people are out late at night in the city like this, they're up to no good. And she asks him, have you seen the one whom my soul loves? Now, one of the reasons I, I think that's, that this is a dream is because that's not actually very helpful. <laughs> you know, she didn't give him much of a description. Have you seen the one I love? But the other reason is she doesn't even give him time to answer. She turns and finds herself in the arms of her beloved. And I just wonder, maybe he was there all along. He sees that she's troubled. So he takes her into his arms. We don't know what caused the the fear of separation. We don't know um, what might have been the instigator. But what we do know is that the woman takes the initiative to go on pursuit. Just like her husband did earlier. She makes the first move. She, in fact, risks her life to find her husband. And in any healthy relationship, this is exactly how it has to work. It takes two people who are both willing to make the first move. After all, if you've been married long enough, you know it's not always springtime in marriage. But when two people are fully committed to pursuing each other, when they're willing to to work through hard things, then then things begin to happen that are otherwise not possible. It's the the process of of being able to step into something hard instead of self-protection walking away. It's the secret to an enduring love. In fact, if you really think about it, and I want you to do that as we process this a little bit together, that's what wedding vows are all about. If you'll notice, when you hear wedding vows, they are a promise of future love. They say nothing about how I feel right now. They are totally forecasted to future possibilities in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. When things are easy, And when things are hard, I'm standing before you right now telling you that in that day, I will still be committed to you. The wedding vows are a promise of future love. It's not a contract based on conditions. It is a covenant based on promises. So once again, she, in light of this, turns to the daughters of Jerusalem and she says, don't awaken love until it pleases. I think, again, what she's communicated is, listen, for those who look and admire the marriage relationship, this is a sacred institution. So don't rush in without considering the promises that you're making, not just to one another, but to the creator God who has brought you together and created marriage to begin with. It's sacred. So be firmly committed to finishing well before you ever, ever get started. Covenant love is secure. And that's why we hold it sacred. 
I think we see such a, a beautiful picture of the, the marriage relationship and the mutual pursuit that is required as we seek to grow in our love for one another. But what we talked about last week is that every time we see the evidence of this love between the husband and wife, that we need to be able to look past it and see an even greater love that comes from the Father who created it. In fact, let's just take the principles of the things that we observed in our passage this morning. The willingness to make the first move. The willingness to to be known and the promise that keeps things secure. If we just take those three things and apply them to God's love for us, we will see the gospel come to life. Because when it comes to our relationship with God, he made the first move. He had to. He had to. Because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And you've heard me say this before, but please hear it again. Dead people don't move. It is a hopeless, helpless place to be. There is no salvation apart from God making the first move. Because apart from Christ, our hearts are ruled by selfish rebellion, and we cannot break free. But Jesus made the first move, and he tells us, I came to set the captives free. He came to to lay down his life for the forgiveness of our sins, rescuing us from the power of sin and death. He was willing to make the first move, and like we see in our passage, he invites us in to the relationship that he's made possible through the cross. He wants us to be fully known and and fully loved within that covenant relationship with him. Psalm 139 says this. It says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. My lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It's, it's high. I cannot attain it. Do you, you hear what he's saying? What's, what's too wonder, what's, what's too incredible to fully comprehend is the fact that we are fully and completely known by the creator God and yet fully and completely loved by him. That, that's a love that our minds can't get our head around completely. He knows every part of you, every thought, every feeling, every doubt, every fear. He knows you to the core and he loves you all the more. Such knowledge is too wonderful to comprehend. But it's true. And Jesus is saying through the cross, having made that move towards us, he's saying that's the love I have for you. And that's a love that is eternally secure. Because really, in our relationship with Christ, it truly is always springtime. And the reason I say that is because there is always new possibilities and fresh starts that are never ending. 
in our relationship with him. Sure, we struggle. There are times of dryness, but that's really on our part because he's always inviting us towards something better. And so, yes, it's important to look back to all that Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. But let me urge you, this morning, in this moment, would you, would you not only concern, consider what he did for you, but would you please take a moment and think about why he did it for you? Let me help you with a passage that makes it clear why. Ephesians chapter 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, here's why. Because of the great love with which he loved you. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, even when you couldn't move, he moved first. He made you alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. God's loving pursuit of you so far surpasses anything that we can read in the Song of Songs. It's unimaginable. He loves you with a love that is eternally secure. This past week, I sat down with Julie Spallholds. Julie, are you here this morning? I don't know if she's, is she not here? Okay. I sat with your mom. We had a great conversation. Jeff was there. And we were having this discussion about just the amazing beauty of the security that we have in the covenant relationship that we have with God through faith in Christ. And just how... Um, strong and secure that is. And I, as we were talking about it, I said, man, there's a, there's a passage that really speaks this clearly to my heart. And so let me read that. And I want to share that with you too, because we read it together um, this last week. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And when I finished reading that verse, I looked up and both Jeff and Julie were crying. And with tears in my eyes, I said, is that the most incredible thing you've ever heard in your life? That in that moment that you believe, that, that you were brought into that eternally secure relationship with God, that he sealed you with that pledge of promise so that it is no longer based on your performance, but it is purely based on his never-ending promise and eternal love for you, and we share in that in this moment on and forever. Is that not the most incredible thing you've ever heard? Because when you stop and think about it, this should bring us to a place where we have the response that we had together in the office this last week, where we are overwhelmed. Our minds can't not wrap ourselves around the infinite love that Christ has for us. We have been pursued by a great affection. We have been rescued by a redeeming love. And we are secure eternally secure in a covenant promise because of Jesus Christ. And so when you look beyond the marriage relationship and the love that we see in the Song of Songs, that's what you should behold. 
we are our beloved's. And he is ours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. The, the creative ways that you allow us to view from different angles the beauty of your affection and love for us. Father, thanks for the song of song. And what seems to be difficult at first glance is really just a beautiful, poetic picture of a love that you created that ultimately was born out of the love that you have for us in every moment of every day, a love that ultimately rescued us from the power of sin, a love that truly made the first move that completed what was necessary, inviting us into a life-giving relationship and securing it with a promise for all eternity. That's what this is all about. So, Father, I just pray that this morning, even as we finish in this closing song, that there is clarity on that love that you have for us that continues to run, pursue, seek, and invite us in to something better. We pray this in your name. Amen. Anything that I would want you to leave this morning, picturing in your mind is what we just sang. That the Lord is faithfully, persistently pursuing you. And look, if you're in a hard place, he's inviting you to something better. If you're in a good place, he's still inviting you to something better. It is always springtime in our relationship with Jesus because it's always filled with new life and new possibilities and fresh starts. So let me encourage you to walk out of here this morning with the picture of a loving God running after you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this church family. And I do ask in your name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we capture that image in our minds and that it won't let us go that we see you pursuing us, inviting us into something better, no matter where we are, that it's always springtime in the way you work out new possibilities, fresh starts, new beginnings. May that flourish within our hearts and lives as we look to you, our great God and King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.